Welcome to our Miracle Ear Advocates podcast. My name is Jonathan Bushman. I am a board certified hearing instrument specialist. Uh, I have been in the re or the field for about 16 years now. Uh, so this podcast, our mission here is to be a hub here in the community and providing resources, advice, information, basically things that will help active agers, seniors and their families with health, wealth, wellness, retirement and relationships and well, hopefully, if I do my job, you'll leave engaged, entertained, and somewhat, just somewhat encouraged here. Uh, so today, I actually have a very special guest. We are going to be talking to Gene Gieselman. Uh, you may recognize his name. You may not. Uh, he was actually the longtime head athletic trainer for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, in fact, he was with the Cardinals for a total of 29 years. Uh, so he's going to share some of his favorite moments that kind of behind the scenes that a lot of people might not get a chance to realize what happens in Major League Baseball. By the way, I know the last name is different, but he just so happens to be my dad as well. So I can confirm a lot of these stories here. So, Gene, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Nice to be with you again. No problem. Saw you many times in the morning when I got up. You go to school. <laughs> yeah, obviously uh, the life of a major leaguer, you know, we'll get into that here in a little bit. But uh, so you're in the PBATS Hall of Fame, which is Professional Baseball Athletic Trainer Society. Correct. You were also the president of that for a while, right? And you resided over the National and American League. Just the National League. Oh, okay. Well, I've always lied then my whole life because I thought it was both. Well, you, you – we're wrong because uh, we were both together, the American League and the National oh, League okay. at the time. So. Okay. So you're in the PBATS Hall of Fame. You're in the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame. Correct. You're in the St. Louis Sports Medicine Hall of Fame. Correct. You're in the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. Correct. You're a distinguished alumni of Wichita State. Yes. Which I'm kind of surprised you graduated college because I can barely even read your writing. I'm teasing. I know. Well, that's because we had tutors back then for the football players and the basketball players and <laughs> athletic trainers. It's probably a good thing. Yes. Any other uh, uh, Hall of Fames or distinguishments that I missed? No, um, not really. I guess I was in the Hall of Fame as taking care of you for as many years as I took care of you because that's that was a, a chore. But uh, you were a wonderful son to be around and enjoyed uh, – <laughs> Enjoyed being with you, and I know you enjoyed being around baseball. Yeah, well, luckily I was the only kid too, except imagine, for our four-legged kids. Well, yeah, except for the dogs. But imagine if you had more of me. Um, I probably wouldn't have any hair then. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. So, okay, so talking about that. So, what would you say was the dumbest thing I ever did growing up? You know what? There are so many. I we don't have time for that. <laughs> but no, you were you were you liked to be around, and uh, I enjoyed. It. Uh, your mother said it was a package deal. If I married her, you came with it, and I'm very very glad and very happy that uh, it was a package deal. Well, I'm glad considering when you all met, I was two. Uh, I don't know many two year olds that can take care of themselves. Uh. No, I don't either. Um, <laughs> well, but... thanks for not shipping me off. So I appreciate it. Well, I'm glad that you think I was good because, I don't know, I remember getting in trouble a lot. Well, one thing that came to mind was the time I borrowed your car when I was 15. But <laughs> that, um, 
that I forgot about, but I was fortunate enough. I had a Jaguar and uh, his mother was a flight attendant. And obviously I was an athletic trainer and we were both on the road and he had to get to baseball practice. He had to get, he decided instead of having somebody pick him up, he decided to drive my um, Jaguar. That was a 12 cylinder, not just a regular Jaguar. And then it had what? 200 miles on it. Oh, I don't even know. (laughs) He decided that after the game, he asked the lady that was supposed to be taking him home, um, where is he going with the car? And he says, I want to go to McDonald's and get a burger. I want to go through the drive-in. Well, that that wasn't the smartest thing to do. But um, Well, probably taking a car at 15 was not the smartest thing to do either. But anyway, so enough of that. So we're talking about burgers. So you're talking about McDonald's. We're actually, we've got kind of a funny story coming up, but what we're going to do is we're actually going to watch a short clip of a video first. When I say cheeseburger, does anything come to mind or any name come to mind? Yes. Eric Gregg. The umpire? Yes. Okay. Well, let that clip roll and let's let's see the video ourselves. Time is called. Now the, the whole thing up by season. He's pointing at it. He's looking out the left field. Eric's looking down the left field. He thinks there's something on the field now. I see. Think about it. All right, so you just saw a video there of longtime uh, National League umpire Eric Gregg picking up a cheeseburger off of third base. But the thing that's funny is in the video is the home plate umpire actually had to call time. That means they're getting ready to start the game, and nobody noticed a huge cheeseburger sitting on third base. Correct. I had uh, I'd planned this, Eric. Um, what you might say was just a tad bit uh, overweight, uh, and he liked to eat. And the umpires used to order food down to the umpire room, and so what I did is I had uh, the attendant that took care of the umpires. I had him get me a burger, and. I knew Tom Lawless was playing left field that day. It was a day game. And I said to Lawman, um, I said, do me a favor. When you run out to left field, put this burger in your glove so they don't see it. But when you run by, drop it on third base. (laughs) And I knew Eric was going to grab it because he ate anything in sight. I mean, uh, that's just the way he was. Um, So the home plate umpire – saw knew what was going on and called time out and Eric picked the burger up. And as you can see on the video, um, he decided to eat some of it. So, uh, it's always been a standing joke and uh lawman pulled it off. Perfect. And Eric, uh, and to this day, we still laugh about it. Although Eric's passed away by now. He did. Eric, Eric passed away actually in 2006. He had some health related issues. Well, he but should because as heavy as he was. Yeah. Yeah. Eating cheeseburgers every day doesn't help. No, nah, but he was a good guy and he had a great sense of humor. And that's just part of the jokes. You know, Major League Baseballs are baseball players and, you know, trainers. And you're considered player coach, though, because you're not just behind the scenes. You're in the dugout for every game. I know every time you hear a national anthem, you always say, do you know how many freaking national anthems I've heard in my life? The stand-up song, we called it. The stand-up song. Well, nowadays, people take a knee, and that's kind of ridiculous. Uh, but we won't get into no, that. We don't We're not getting into that. that. <laughs> yeah, I know. We're not going to get into that. Um, but anyway, so Eric Gregg had a huge sense of humor. But 
a lot of people didn't realize that that uh, cheeseburger on on third base was um, thought up by the the Cardinals head athletic trainer. And I know you guys always had a lot of funny moments there. But so after the game, did he say anything to you about it? I mean, he knew it was you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we we still do this when he was living and when he was umpiring, he he said, are you going to put a burger out there for me today? You know, uh, <laughs> just kidding me. But we never did it again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, then it got kind of old. Right. So anyway, okay. So we're going to talk, you know, here about some more things. But I know that's even my friends growing up had always asked me kind of the behind the scenes on the Eric Greg cheeseburger on third. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, so kind of still around the time frame talking about the 1985 World Series here. We're going to talk about the call. Do you know what I mean by the call? You should. Don Dettinger uh, made a mistake, but that's why there's erasers on pencils, and that's why there's replays today. Um, yeah. It, it, he was definitely out, and, um, you know, it cost us basically a World Series. And what a lot of people don't understand is that um, I went in the clubhouse knowing the fact that uh, we probably were two outs away from winning another World Series. And the commissioner uh, was in the clubhouse. They had the platform already uh, built. The trophy was in there. And for you people that have ever watched the ceremony, uh, there's always champagne being sprayed. So what they did is put plastic over every one of our lockers so that the champagne would not get on our clothes. Well, that was all in place. Well, after he missed the call and we lost the game, you should have seen the clubhouse attendants and everybody uh, wheeling the champagne that was iced down out of the clubhouse, tearing down the plastic um, that was to protect our clothes, the commissioner walking out with the trophy that was supposed to be handed to Whitey and Mr. Bush. Um, it was it was kind of a, a sad situation that probably wouldn't happen today because of the re, um, replays. But we basically knew that if we did not score first in game seven, that um, they had the momentum. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. they, that turn turned it. Um, you know, it, it's just one of those things. Um, there's a lot of bad calls <laughs> still to this day. Um, but it happened and you just got to turn a page and I feel bad for everybody that was on the 85 team that they didn't get a world series ring. And the money was, would have been spent, but the rings are there forever. In fact, well, they uh, did get a ring. It's just a national championship ring. That's correct. And in fact, this is the one that you were kind enough to give me and I wear it. Yeah. What, what year is that that you wear there? 82. Cause that's the only one that I was involved in that, as the won, world the, won, won the world series okay so i i always found that interesting because obviously even growing up with you as my dad i didn't know that the world series trophy and all that was already in the clubhouse so that's kind of a real kick in the teeth there um so talking still about the call now obviously i've also known whitey since i was a little boy and i know the mouth that whitey has and some of the words that he used to choose so Without directly saying what Whitey did, 
what was part of the conversation that he said when he went out to confront uh, Deckinger? You know, I wasn't there, but I'm sure there were some choice words. And the problem is he was the first base umpire that night that he missed the call. Mm -hmm. So guess where he was going to be the next night? Home plate. Home plate. And so whatever was said, um, umpires are humans just like all the rest of us. And I don't think it carried over, but we got our rear ends kicked pretty good that night. Um, Kansas City was – but we had no momentum. Um well, I mean, after but, that, yeah, you guys it's are like deflated. Top of a balloon. And, you know, there was there was no air in that. There was no air or no lift uh, to the game. So, yeah. like I said, if we would have scored first, maybe that would have helped. But who knows? Yeah. Okay. So that was the call. Like I said, I found that really interesting, and you know, like you mentioned, heartbreaking for the teammates and the coaches that you had that particular year. But that also kind of makes me think of uh, what was it, nineteen ninety six, when you guys were up three to nothing against the Braves. I know Mom and I already had our bags packed to go to New York for the World Series. Um, yes, ninety six. You guys were up um, three to nothing, right? And ended up, yeah, we uh, Atlanta, Atlanta just uh, Donovan Osborne. Uh, a good guy. He pitched the last game, but with that game was over with. Uh, and I think in the first inning, I think he scored three or four or five runs the first inning. But yeah, no, it, there was not. Um, once once that happened, we knew we weren't going to New York. And that would have been great to go to New York because Joe Torre was the manager of the Yankees, uh, played for the Cardinals, was the manager of the Cardinals. A uh, dear friend of mine, uh, you know him. He stayed at our house when he got the job uh, with the Cardinals. Well, remember, he paid for my honeymoon, too. That's exactly right. He, he was nice enough to pay for Jonathan Christine's honeymoon over in Hawaii. Great guy, still is. Um, and, um, you know, I, I would have loved to have gone up to New York and uh, been part of that scene of uh, another World Series. Yeah, that would have been pretty cool. Cardinals-Yankees World Series, right. the most legendary National League team and the most legendary American League team. So, anyway, not to bring up bad stuff there. but uh, So, that was also kind of brutal. But anyway, so another thing that, that a lot of my friends always ask me about it was in the paper and we knew what happened, but there was still a lot of people felt like unquestioned or unanswered questions was when Vince Coleman got caught up in the automatic tarp, obviously at the old Bush stadium. That was during a playoff game. Yes. And that was, that was in the haste of the fact that a rainstorm came in really quick. Vince was, standing and talking with I think Ozzy and a few other guys and the groundskeeper um, wanted to get the tarp on to, to help save the game uh, so it would not be a, a delayed rain out or long game so to speak in a playoff especially for TV and everything and the tarp came up and <laughs> they started it rolling and Vince got his leg caught and at first we just thought it was basically a strain uh but with the medical technology the next day that with the mris and everything we found out he had a fracture of one of the uh, bones connecting to the knee so um he was out we lost him for the um the world series and we lost the world series because he was he was kind of a 
What year well, was that? Uh, 97, I think. Against, 97 against, or 87? 87 against the uh, Minnesota um, Twins. I was yeah. there when I remember yeah. how loud the Metrodome was. And you had oh, to give yeah. us we had, a, we had hearing aids. Uh, not hearing. Yeah, we should have had hearing aids. We needed him after leaving there. That's a, <laughs> it's a good plug for Miracle here. But we used uh, earplugs. And actually, I gave the commissioner, um, I bought a bunch of uh, earplugs, but that would have been a, a good place for you guys to set up an office. Yeah, yeah. now I get it. So, yeah, so it's ironic that that one of the fastest guys in Major League Baseball at the time gets caught up in a slow tarp. Right. And we also lost um, Terry Pendleton to that deal. And the big one, the big bat, uh, the speed was invinced, but we lost Jack Clark. Uh, he had had that high ankle sprain that he got in Montreal. Uh, during the regular season, and um, I told Whitey, um, I said, I'll have him ready by Friday, and Whitey tells to this day, yeah, I didn't know it was going to be good Friday, though. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about October till uh, whatever yeah. good Friday was that year. Yeah. So that, I, I said, well, I'll have him ready by Friday, though. It, it didn't happen. Well, and as far as Vince, I mean, how devastating because that year, obviously, we were playing the San Francisco Giants in the playoffs before we beat them and moved on to the World Series there. But, I mean, losing your leadoff hitter, and I, I don't think a lot of people even realize that he had actually broken a bone. I no, we they, didn't at first either. Yeah. Um, until we did test the next day. Yeah. Uh, we thought it was just going to be a strain of the knee and that hopefully through uh, treatment that we would get him back for the World Series. So talking about the tarp and talking about the old Bush Stadium, another question that my friends always asked me growing up or even just people that, you know, knew that you were my dad or, or whomever it might be. They always said, you know, we heard the the players would always complain about the temperature of the AstroTurf. They're like, is that a real thing? Was it really that much damn hotter? Yes. We put thermometers in the AstroTurf and registered between 130 and 135 degrees. Now, the strange thing about that is I had to uh, get boxes uh, and put ice in them. And that's back when players wore metal cleats. And I even, uh, Joe Torrey was a friend of uh, some people with NASA, NASA, the rocket people. NASA. Yeah, NASA. You know what I meant. Um so I called them to see if they had, because they had the shield on the, um, whatever comes back, the uh, capsule. Spaceship? Comes, yeah, this capsule that comes, comes back to, uh, and lands in the seat. I wanted to know if they had some kind of protection that I can make inner soles out of to protect the ball players from the heat. And they, they were not. actually getting blisters on the oh, bottom of their feet. Burnt, yes. So yeah. what I did is I put buckets and, boxes of ice and water in the dugout and in between innings they came in and actually stood in that to cool the cleats down and uh, cool themselves down the interesting thing is is Lou Brock always told me that left field in the old ballpark was brutal because the sun would hit the stadium club and bounce back down on him and on the astroturf so it was actually hotter out there so it so left hot. field is hotter than right field. That's that's what he claims. Okay. Um, because of the shadows <clears throat> coming over and the sun hitting the glass on the 
um, stadium club and bouncing right down on left field. Okay. So when it did hit 130, 135 degrees, what was the outside temperature? I mean, was it over 100? Or that was just sometimes. on a normal day. Yeah, sometimes. We used um, what we called ammonia towels, and it's not ammonia. It's what's called spirits of ammonia. We had ice buckets, and we would sponge the players off and refresh them uh, to try to keep them safe. Knock on wood, I never had a heat-related uh, problem because we taught these guys to hydrate not only that day of the game, but the night before. So we were very, very diligent on keeping our players hydrated, and uh, it, it worked. I mean, I was very fortunate, and I tell you who – People like Eric Gregg, the umpires <clears throat> that didn't have a break to come in between innings. Yeah. But they were standing on dirt, too. Yeah. Um, they weren't standing on ash, the actual AstroTurf. So, yeah. But they, they, they were out there for two and a half, three hours, yeah. um, depending on the length of the game. So even NASA couldn't help you develop soles for the inside of their shoes, they like the, the heat tiles that no. they have on the front of the, the No, I, they didn't at that time. <clears throat> Excuse me. I said spaceship. Clearly, neither of us are rocket scientists here. So <laughs> pardon our terminology there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you a story when we get to travel about uh, the space shuttle, too. Okay. <clears throat> All right. That kind of concerns me that you know anything about the space shuttle. So anyway, moving on. Um, Excuse me. So obviously the AstroTurf, you know, and, and that's why most of the stadiums went back to natural grass, but it was also just killing a lot of the players like Andre Dawson. And the, and the fact that it was hard, there was asphalt underneath. It was hard on their knees. It was just hard on their whole body. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that people don't realize, if an outfielder or an infielder slid on the AstroTurf, which was plastic, Mother Nature has a way of keeping bacteria because of the heat and moisture into that plastic. And it was tougher for me as an athletic trainer to get all these um, abrasions or strawberries or whatever you want to call them to heal because of the fact that there was the bacteria from the, from the heat and from the moisture got into the skin. That sounds fun. I mean, obviously, as a former baseball player myself, I've had plenty of strawberries. And you don't ever think it hurts that bad till you hop in the shower. Then you realize, wow, this is not that pleasant. So, obviously, over 29 years, you've had a ton of players, you know, a lot of your good friends. Um, who were some of the managers that you were the trainer under? Well, I started out with Red Shaneys, who was very, very uh, instrumental in helping me learn the so-called uh, etiquette of uh, baseball um, from did him. you ever learn it uh yeah he was a pretty good teacher and <laughs> he was a good man and was a fun man as you know to be around and we stayed friends unfortunately uh, he passed away when he was 92 years old but what a good person and you know I had Kenny Boyer um, I had Joe Torrey uh, who I had as a player in the 70s, became manager. Uh, Whitey was, you know, all, most of my managers were really, really good people. Some, I have, it's just like a school teacher. Not every, uh, you don't care for every t uh, student that you have the same as you do some. So uh, I was very, very fortunate that I had 
great people to work with. And we won't name that manager that is now in charge of the Chicago White Sox. Anyway. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> hey, so so obviously, yeah, I mean, that's neat that you've you've had that relationship. But you look at how many also of the managers you've had that are Hall of Famers. Yep. Red, Whitey, Joe Torre, or will be if he's not. And KB might be. KB. You know, uh, oh, Kenny Boyer. Boyer. Um, okay. I mean, there's talk that, you know, he he was a hell of a ball player. Yeah. Um, and he was a heck of a good guy. He, the reason he was unsuccessful as a manager is the players that he had weren't weren't the quality of players. In fact, when he got fired, he got fired between double headers in Montreal. <laughs> um, and the reason it was between double headers is John Claiborne was the general manager and he was flying to Montreal to fire him. Well, I had dinner with uh, KB or Kenny that night and Kenny would have not known that he got fired because there was a lot of, uh, we were in an Italian restaurant, there was a lot of red wine uh, involved in white wine and Budweiser and Bud Light. Bottom line is, is you couldn't get a direct flight from St. Louis to Montreal. So uh, John Claiborne had to go through Chicago. Well, there was a tremendous thunderstorm in Chicago and his flight to Montreal, he missed. So he had to fly in the next day, and he didn't get there until after the first game started. So he, when we saw him there, everybody kind of got a little suspicious of why he was up there, was it a trade or not. Well, we found out <clears throat> between games, he fired KB or Kenny, and um, that's... Well, did you guys win the first game of the doubleheader? You know what? I can't remember that. Um, I really couldn't remember. Uh, Jack Kroll took over managing. He was a third base coach. He took over managing the second game. And then they had already, uh, they knew they were going to fire Kenny. And that's, they negotiated, uh, Gussie negotiated with Whitey to take over uh, for Kenny, which, um, but Kenny did not have, he did not have the horses and you can't win races without horses. And if you all remember that winter, Whitey Cape went out to San Diego to the winter meeting and he backed up the truck and dumped nine of his nine players. Um, yeah. And he got rid of the dead wood and brought in good wood. Yeah. Makes sense. Obviously, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's hard to win when you're not necessarily fielding the the highest caliber team. And, you know, I mean, and unfortunately, the one that's got to take responsibility for that and whose head on the line is the manager. So, I can't say what, what he said because of the audience, but he, he had a good sign, uh, a good saying for what he had, what he was dealt, the deck he was dealt, and he got rid of that deck. and. Put, yeah. a new, put a new deck out. <clears throat> well, and I know, so obviously Whitey has had a very strong personality, but that's also part of what helped turn St. Louis baseball around in the early 80s. But one of the big things that, that occurred was him shipping out Gary Templeton and bringing in Ozzie Smith from San Diego. So you all have a picture in the basement from Whitey that I still want. Um because well, I take a dirt nap, you can have it. A dirt nap. What is wrong with you? Um, 
it's a picture of Whitey grabbing Templeton. Then the next picture is them on the stairs. And then the third picture is Templeton on his back with Whitey grabbing him by his shirt. Why did Whitey do that? Well, he gave the one finger salute to the crowd, which was Ladies' Day. <laughs> and that didn't go over very good <laughs> with the rat. And uh, Gary, I was standing, I used this to next uh, close to Whitey. Um, but Gary's feet never hit the three steps on that dugout. He had him by the jersey, and they he went right down to the bottom of the dugout, and that was it. But, you know, Gary, Gary was a good guy. Um, I had him when he was a rookie. Um, but you just don't do that, and especially with somebody like the rat. I call Whitey the rat. Um, especially on Ladies Day. And that back then, that, we were just – starting to turn the club around um and there wasn't that many people in the stands but you know after whitey started winning then that's when the d tennis came up but winning baseball is what puts fans in the stands no i get it well that are steroids yeah well and flipping off the crowd does not help but hey look what that did for the cardinals by opening up obviously room for ozzy smith so what? not quite the bat that gary had but defensively but he unmatched learned to hit he when Whitey, or when uh, Ozzy came here, he w was known for his glove, but he was a hard worker, um, and he learned to hit and learned to hit well. Yeah, and that so he had he had two tools: he could glove and he could hit. Yeah, and he could do flips on opening day. Right. That was always fun. So. Tell us, you know, so obviously 29 years, you've got to see a lot of travels and things like that. What is the travel like in Major League Baseball? Well, it's very first class. Um, we were very fortunate. Um, Gussie, when he was alive, he gave us all individual hotel rooms, uh, which a lot of clubs had to share a room with another ball player or they had to pay for a single room. But we in the Cardinal organization always had our, our own single room. Um, we had charter flights. Um, when I first came in the league, we had United that came out of Chicago and in that, that was kind of tough because of the weather out of Chicago and you had to wait for one of their planes to come in. And then we switched to Ozark, which was based here in St. Louis and they flew DC nines with United. We flew 727s. In fact, a funny story with United, we used to fly out of the old terminal. I don't know how many people here knew where the old terminal was, but um, traveling secretary was Leo Ward and Red. They were very, very, uh, like all managers, Whitey, all, everyone I've been with is very good about when it, if the flight's going to leave at five, the flight leaves at five. And if you're not on it, they don't go back and take a, a room count or a head count and see who's there. You the door shut. Well, we're taxing out from the old uh, terminal and you had to get down to the main runway. And you know how people look out the window when you're moving. And there was a player by the name of um, Daryl Patterson. And back then there was no security. And here he is actually running down the runway with a suitcase, waving at us to stop the plane. Leo Ward 
the player said, Daryl's coming. He's a pitcher. Well, we needed him. So Leo said to the flight attendant, tell the pilot to stop. And back then, 727 is before J.P. Cooper jumped out. Um, they had a back stairways that they lowered down. Well, they lowered the back stairways, and here Daryl walked up with his suitcase, got on the plane, came back up. We took off and it went where we went. But to this day, that was uh, that's crazy. But we we really traveled first class. Um, the charters, everybody basically knew where they sat. I sat in the same seat the whole time, um, and players sat there. They they either when we traveled, you either had the group that read, you had the people back then, you, you had the Walkman or whatever, and they could listen to music, or there was always a lot of card games, uh, and nice card games. There was poker games, there were blackjack games. Um, well, there, I remember there were that. There were guys that lost all their meal money before the plane ever took <laughs> off. Uh, but, you know, that's that's part of the deal. But, yeah, the hotels we stayed in were very, very good. Now, one interesting thing that I want to bring up when we talk about Whitey, he did something that at first everybody kind of didn't know if we liked because we used to always travel after a game, whether the game ended at 12 o'clock after a rain delay or whatever. We always traveled to the next city after the game. Well, when Whitey came here, he thought it was good um, – to travel the day of the game. And there was a reason for that. His theory was that gave you a chance on Sunday. If we played a Sunday day game, you could go home and barbecue and be with your family. And then you get up the next morning and you travel to the city, which gave you an extra day, but it also saved the club meal money for a day. And it saved them hotel for a day. At first, everybody didn't like it, but then all of a sudden, we all started thinking, boy, this is the greatest thing since a slice of bread that we get to spend extra time at home, uh, blah, blah, blah. And most of the time, though, we traveled at night after the game. And the story I was going to tell you about the rocket ship is we were in Montreal. and There were two airports in Montreal. There was Dorbel that was downtown, and there was Morbel, which was built for the Olympics, which was about an hour from the, uh, the stadium. Well, they, Darvell had a, a, a curfew because of noise abatement where you couldn't take, after, take off after midnight. So <clears throat> this particular time we played an extra inning game, um, a long game or whatever, and we had to go to Maribel. So we, and that's an hour's trip. Now you've got to understand too, people, that every manager has a decision to make how long after the, the game is over, do you leave the ballpark? Do you, some manager said 45 minutes, some had an hour. Well, rat was 45 minutes cause he wanted to get going. And um, so here we are, we, we take off, we travel to Maribel. We have to load the plane. Then you have to take off and fly to St. Louis. And by when you land in St. Louis, you have to get your luggage and then you have to get your car and then you have to go home. Well, I get home about three or four in the morning, which is, isn't unusual in baseball. A lot of times the newspaper was on the driveway. Well, the phone rings about 
oh, I'd say 9.30 or 10, I can't remember. Jonathan was off to school, and I pick it up, and it's a guy calling me. He says, did I wake you up? And I, I guess he could tell by my voice. I said, yeah. I said, well, I didn't get home till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. He says, well, I watched the game, and it was over at 10. I says, well, <laughs> it was over at 10 in St. Louis. I said, that was 11 in Montreal. And then we had to travel to, the, uh, to load up the plane or shower and everything. I said, what do you think we did? We fly the shuttle back here or what? I said, we didn't land till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. He says, well, I guess I don't get tickets tonight. I said, I guess you don't. <laughs> so, But that's that was a shuttle story. All right. So, okay. So, obviously, the, the, in the Daryl Patterson story, him running yeah. down the tarmac, that is quite funny. Um, when you tell that story in the future, it's D.B. Cooper. Okay. I'm J.P. You yeah. called me JP your whole life. Yeah, well, that's that's <laughs> that's what happens when you get to be seventy five years old. You know, you get to you get the initials. Um, no, I know. Obviously, I'm just teasing because yeah. I've always teased you my whole life. But no, so I mean, so yeah, and that's so interesting for people to hear about the travel in Major League Baseball because they just don't understand, and they don't understand the amount of time that you guys are away from their families. And in fact, us, we always did our our freaking family vacations in the winter. Yeah, we didn't have a choice. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say, um, people wonder how then we can get off that. We used to get meal money. Um, and the meal money ballpark figure was when I got out in 97, uh, was maybe 55 or 60 dollars a day. Well, everybody thinks that that's a lot of money. Well, <clears throat> what that meal money did is you had to back then, if you picked up a phone in the hotel, it was a dollar just to pick up the phone. If you sent your cleaning out or whatever. But the other thing that people don't realize is we had to pay what they call clubhouse dues. And at the end, in the 90s, I was paying the clubhouse guy $50 a day. So if we were in a three-day uh, series, I was giving the clubhouse guy $150. Now, obviously, that's a tax write-off because it's a business expense. But those are money that people don't realize that you spent. And the clubhouse guys, they take care of your, uh, what they call a spread, food after the game. They do all your laundry, um, clean your shoes, all that stuff. So they they earn the money. It's just a fact that people probably say, hmm, well, that's a lot of money. Well, it doesn't go very far when you, um, when you eat nice restaurants and um, cabs. You go someplace else. So. It, 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 travel, it adds up. Travel, travel was travel was uh, a big thing, like you said. Okay, well, it adds up. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's obviously super interesting because, like I said, these are stories that the average person obviously does not get to hear, <clears throat> and I don't think they realize what is involved and how many people it takes to keep this team running. So, one thing that is interesting, you look at today's world of you know everybody has a degree in this or that. An athletic trainer, that's the only job in Major League Baseball that requires a college degree, correct? Correct. That, you know, it's, it's one of those things that um, you had to be certified. Um, and you had it in the state of Missouri. I had to be licensed in the state of Missouri. Now, that just came about in the 80s, so to speak, where you had to be licensed in certain states. Uh, I had a license both in Missouri and in Florida because of spring training. Um, but we we were the only 
job in Major League Baseball that required uh, a college degree. Nowadays, these new general managers and people that are, are coming because of the computers, um, they're coming out of Harvard and Yale and everything like that. Back in the 60s, 70s, 50s, most of your general managers and people were baseball people, people yeah. that grew played the game um, <clears throat> for no better term, terminology, put a jock on and realized what, what the game was all about. Yeah. Uh, not a college degree or um, analytic degree or a financial degree or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, and, and I appreciate you sharing. Um, so one thing that, that is kind of a hot topic nowadays, and we even saw St. Louis's own Max Scherzer get searched or checked last night at last night's game three separate times by the umpire with doctoring baseballs. Back in your day, obviously they didn't check unless they had a reason to. What was some of the ways they would do the the baseball doctoring? Well, besides the, pine tar. Pine tar, um, they would scuff the ball. Um, the catcher could use a shin guard when he got the ball, just grab, just take a swap uh, and throw it back and nick the ball. Um, the belt buckle, they could scuff the ball, make it do things. Um, they could use KY jelly. They could use pine tar. Pine tar was big because it was sticky. Um, they, they, they put it in a lot of different places. I did not see much suntan lotion back then, but guys didn't wear a lot of suntan lotion back then. Um, but they, they, they doctored the balls. Heck, I yeah. mean, they've been doctoring the balls since this game was invented to make, to well, make yeah. a move. But nowadays, they, apparently the spider tack, uh, you know, it was overboard. Uh, and now they got all these spin ratios and all this stuff. You know, all we knew is the ball broke down. They <laughs> called it Uncle Charlie. You know, they didn't know how many <laughs> spin ratio it was or dropped off the table or Whatever it, it, the game is, it's a lot different nowadays. I mean, it's just a big business, and obviously, you know, people are finding ways to be better cheaters, I suppose, like the Astros sitting there hammering their trash cans. Yeah, and steroids obviously was a big bad thing. So, we'll, we'll bring this up as the last subject. So, as we talked about before, you were the presidents for PBATS, which is Professional Baseball Athletic Trainer Society. Um, you actually, when Congress did the congressional hearings about steroids in Major League Baseball, you actually had to go testify up in D.C. No, no, no. I saw your your close, but close only counts on horseshoes and grenades. Um, Don Hooten was was up there. I was not. Oh, I, oh, oh, okay. I watched that. It was on. Um, uh, St. Patrick's Day, and I watched it every minute of that. Um, and I contacted Don afterwards because he did such a great job. Oh, okay. And okay. That's how I got involved with the Taylor, the Taylor Hooten Foundation. Foundation. Okay. Um, it's because cheating, and you know, you could tell that the game had changed. Um, weights had come in. And one thing that, and then we can. I know we're time wise. One thing that steroids did when I first came in the game in the sixties and seventies, there were no weights at, at all in any major league clubhouse. It was all just natural 
talent that the person, the ball player had. Then they started putting weights in the room. Well, what steroids did besides making you big is you could work out every day. It, the, the old school was if you worked out on Monday, you took Tuesday off to let your muscles regroup. Then you worked out on Wednesday. You took, it, it was an everyday cycle, every other day cycle. Well, with steroids, you could work out every day. So no wonder why these guys got so big. Um, well, plus it created some attitude adjustments. I remember at the 93 All-Star Game, and I just told this story to somebody else this morning when I went up to Barry Bonds, because remember, you gave me a couple cases of baseballs to get autographed. Right. You and the uh, Richie Bancho son. With the Orioles, yeah. Right. So I walked up to Barry Bonds, and remember when I asked him to sign it, and he said no, but his locker was right next to Lee Smith, the Cardinals' longtime closer. And Lee Smith was not a big dude or small dude. He was six, no. eight. He stood up. He stood up and stood over Barry and said, man, he said a couple choice words. And he says, this is Gino's son. You better sign this ball. So that's the only reason I got an autograph from Bonds. But he was just a jerk and it changed their whole personalities. And unfortunately, personality is, is part of the game. And, you know, you got to be nice to the fans. Without the fans, you're nothing. Apples don't fall too far for the tree. That's why I know you didn't like his dad either. His dad, I had uh, Bobby, and um, he he was no good either. So okay. I mean, well, it, thank it, you it for not using me. your typical yes um, saying if somebody is not yeah. liked. Yeah. But anyway, so okay, I well, I appreciate that. These stories are so fascinating, and you know, I know I heard a lot of them growing up, or even you know, I would hear you on the phone with different people and. You would always say, now, Jonathan, you can't tell your friends because this isn't going to be out in the newspaper for a few days. So obviously I heard all those those things uh, growing up and I knew I couldn't go tell my friends, even though some of them I did. But you got to figure that. Um, but anyway, hearing these stories and, and sharing this, it's so cool for our audience to get to hear that because it's behind the scene of Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball is not just nine innings. Major League Baseball is not just two and a half hours a day. There is so much involved. So once again, this is Gene Gieselman, uh, former head athletic trainer for the St. Louis Cardinals. He was there 29 years. It's been an absolute joy to hear some of these stories. Like I said, he also so happens to be my dad. Um, so it has been an absolute pleasure once again to have you. Um, you can actually check out our podcasts at freemiracletest.com. You can also check out um, some of our jobs that we will have available through our Miracle Ear company here. Um, for those of you that would prefer to listen to the podcast and not see us, which I don't blame them because we both have a face for radio, um, you can check us out on the Apple Podcast, Spotify, or most other places that you would uh, listen to your podcasts. Uh, you can also find us on the show socials, Facebook. So you can find us under Miracle Ear Greater St. Louis. Greater Ozarks, Greater Kansas City, Greater Mid-Missouri, and Greater Arkansas Plus YouTube are on YouTube, I should say. So anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure. I will see you all in another couple weeks. And once again, thank you, Gene Giesman, St. Louis Cardinals. Y'all have a good one.